0: You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Hey, good morning. Uh, We are in week three of a series on Ecclesiastes, as Natalie mentioned it, and this week we're going to talk about something you think about, you hear about, and you're looking for constantly in this life. At least the philosopher in Ecclesiastes would say that's true of you. Pleasure, pleasure. So turn to the person next to you and say, he's gonna talk about pleasure in church? To help get started, I bought a, or I brought a box filled with treasures of pleasure. Things that bring me pleasure in this life. Things I believe that bring many of you pleasure in this life. Like, how can you go wrong Especially in this season of fresh berries, with whipped cream. I mean, is there anything more pleasurable than whipped cream?
1: Wise mm. men say. Yes, they do. Only who's mm. But I can
0: That is so good. In love with love you. Love you. I got so much pleasure from whipped cream. Mm. But my favorite dessert, anyone who knows me, is a butter tart. Now, two types of people in this world people that believe butter tarts can have nuts in it or can not have raisins in it and be plain. And then people that know butter tarts have to have raisins in them in order to be a butter tart. So, in other words, people that are wrong and people that are right. Is for my family and this is a buttery pastry with a beautiful filling with raisins in it
1: mm. you are so beautiful to me
0: yes you are
1: can't you see me
0: mm. uh-huh. no. yeah
1: you're everything I hope <laughs> Raisins and all. <laughs> mm. You're everything I need.
0: What a great breakfast. Mm. Breakfast you of champions right there. Are
1: so beautiful.
0: Mm. Nice, nice. I don't know what this is doing in here. My mom must have put this in here. Pleasure and broccoli. I give it a shot, but I, I don't think so.
1: You know, you don't like the taste, 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 taste. Don't put it in your face, 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 face. Cause broccoli's what you hate, hate,
0: hate. Need hate, a saute, hate, hate. this or so something, shake it up, stir fry.
1: Shake it off.
0: Gladly, gladly, gladly. Oh, one more thing. Wow. Sorry, I just get a little emotional here. Now. <laughs> coffee i can't be <sighs> if living is without i know i know i can't i can't, live, can't live anymore i can't be oh. there's if tea people and coffee me. people <laughs> in other words there are people, and then there are amazing people. <laughs> oh, that's satisfying. Wow. What a pleasure to have coffee. So we're in this Can series live on the
1: clock. No, without Natalie. you. No. I can't
0: live. Guys. Guys. I can't live anymore. <laughs> this is getting embarrassing. <laughs> No, no we're, it's done, it's done. It's over. We're done this part. Wrap it up, yeah. Hey, good job, good job, good job. Somebody get that woman a coffee. <laughs> well, we've been journeying in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've learned over the last couple of weeks, it's an odd book. Someone said after the last gathering, it was a book in the Bible that they avoided at all costs. They had done a little study on wisdom literature books and they came to Ecclesiastes and they asked themselves, where's the wisdom? Where's the wisdom in this? See, in order to understand this book, remember this. It is the only book in the Bible that's written from the perspective of a skeptic. Somebody who believes that this life is all there is. There's no life under the sun There's only life under the sun. There's no God or eternity or anything. We're an accident. Our origin is an accident. And he writes it from that perspective, and it's a brilliantly written book. And today, we're going to look at pleasure. Now, right away, some of us are thinking, pleasure in church? We all know know if it's pleasurable in church, it must be sinful. If it's fun, it must be undone. See what I did there? you're welcome. If it's pleasurable, it must be sinful. If it's, if, it's, if it's fun, it must be undone. In other words, that God and the church and everything is against things that are pleasurable, are we not? Well, I think by the end of this message, you should have your minds changed on that, because God doesn't see things maybe perhaps as we have. Now, just to help you understand a little bit, often in the church world, uh, people, sometimes churches have seen an abuse of pleasure and they take extreme positions. We do this in our culture and society, don't we? Left and right. I don't know if I've ever lived in an era of my life where the right has been more extreme or the left has been more extreme. So like kind of, if you're in the middle. And interesting if you have political ideologies. If you're going to follow Jesus, the left and the right at the extremes, they're not going to appreciate you. Because he didn't live out on those wings. Very interesting how he, but you've got to read the life of Jesus to understand that. Here's the interesting thing. If you're a skeptic here today, I'm so glad you're here. If you've got questions and on that range of being a skeptic from full on, there is no God, awesome, to uh, I believe in God, but I'm not sure. If you're a skeptic here, I would really invite you, listen, I get you, I have sat in the skeptic seat. I understand exactly that journey. I would invite you to come and explore meaning with us at Alpha this fall. Starting September 12th at this campus, or September 14th at our Claire Lee campus, whichever one fits your schedule or your location better, choose an Alpha, come to it. It's a place where we have food, we have lots of questions. You can ask any question you want. We will journey in conversation with each other to discover and explore meaning in life. If you'd like to be a part of that, go see Pastor Dan or Pastor Austin who's wearing the big question mark in the middle of the lobby and they'll answer questions pertaining to Alpha. Now, if you're hearing and say, well, Pastor Jonathan, and I kind of think I've found meaning in life in God. Awesome. Go through all the people you know now. Hopefully there's someone there exploring faith, exploring meaning in life, has big questions. If you can't think of someone, you need to get more friends. (laughs) And consider inviting them to join you for Alpha this fall as we explore the meaning of life together. Now, in just a moment, we're going to have someone from our congregation via video read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, because that's where we're going to spend all our time, verses 1 to 11. But before we go there, and as you're even turning there, if you want to in your Bibles, we have Wi-Fi in the church. You can look it up on the Bible app. But before we go there, I want to talk about some basic pleasure truths that are true that will help us guide our conversation today. The first one is simply this, that pleasures are highly charged. They're highly exciting They're highly energizing, and they're highly charged. So I thought, let's make a list of some of the things that you think, in our culture and world, and maybe in your life, we turn to for pleasure in life. Uh, That whole slow jam at the beginning with Natalie, it was interesting. uh, uh, That was Pastor Dennis's idea. Uh, He pastors our Claire Lee campus, and he was pitching the idea to about six of us staff this last week. And he said, you know, when people think of pleasure, the first thing they think of in our culture is food. And no staff member made a sound until one of them began to laugh and said, I don't think that's the first thing people think of in our culture when it pertains to pleasure. I won't tell you what staff member that is because I wouldn't want to embarrass them. But man, she led worship well today. So the first thing, whether or not we pursue pleasure in sex actually in our life, we have to acknowledge in our culture and society, this is a highly sexual culture, highly centralized culture. In fact, you don't sell many products without using this. It's that part of our narrative. And so often when we think of pleasure, we immediately think of something like sex or we think of food, like I mentioned earlier. So what are some of the other things you think of when you think of pleasures in this life? Cleaning, did someone say? I don't think so. That's not going up there. Sports. Okay, sports. Let's do sports slash competition because it's more than the physical activity. I think the competition appeals to, it's a pleasurable activity for some people. Anyone else? Shopping. Shopping. Yes. I had a woman after the last gathering saying, it's not shopping, it's getting the deal. That's addictive, right? But shopping, and you know, we could even go fashion. Some people find great uh, uh, pleasure in fashion and in in shopping. Anybody else? Dancing, I'm hearing. I saw some of you dancing in that worship set. (laughs) Anyone else? Work, work. Oh, everybody's like, no, not me. Some of you work awful hard because you love it. You love it. And maybe you love it more than you love going home. I don't know, but that could be a pleasure. Anyone else? Inter- uh, let's go entertainment. Entertainment, I heard a bunch of things that fall under that category. Entertainment, that could be even uh, uh, music, anything like that, movies, TV. You know, have you ever met someone like this? They find incredible pleasure in Drama, not the theatrical type, but creating it. They're so creative. But no, seriously, people take drama and people take pleasure in drama and in Gossip. gossip. Right now, anyone know anyone like that? It's because you might be that person. I don't know. We find pleasure in many things in life. Anything else? One more, one or two more ones. There is this way too much stuff coming at me right now. I heard sleeping. (laughs) Oh, substances. Okay, so any type of substance or something like that in life. Here's the interesting thing with all of these things. What might be my pleasure may not be your pleasure. We all have a different group of pleasures. Usually it's not one thing on a list, and the list could go on and on and on, friends. It's not often just one thing that we take pleasure in. It's a mixture of things. We all have a different pleasure-gift mix, so to speak. So what I find pleasurable might not be what you find pleasurable, vice versa, right? I think we need to acknowledge that, that pleasures are different according to the person, but also, too, that pleasures in themselves here, all of them, all of these are highly charged and here's why if you don't know what your pleasures are think of answer this question where do you go when you're bored where do you go now when i'm not just talking bored for an hour some of us are bored with our lives and we divert and look to pleasures to fill the gap where do you go when you're tired when you're stressed that's your pleasure centers now why do you go to pleasure because pleasure gives us three things we all are looking for in this world when we feel stretched thin when we're stressed when we're tired when we have anxiety we all go to pleasures because they provide comfort they provide pockets of comfort in an otherwise boring or tough life they provide excitement in a life that feels unexciting They provide escape, an opportunity to escape our present reality. This is why addiction counselors will say these things can be highly addictive because we get pleasure from them, we get a dopamine hit in our head when we participate in them, and they become highly addictive. More about that later. So pleasures are highly charged. Here's another thing. Pleasures drive our actions we make and often we're not even cognizant of this we make decisions based on our pleasures a famous philosopher 400 years ago Blaise pascal he said this he said all men women seek happiness or pleasure this is without exception whatever different means they employ they all tend to this end the cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of, can you say it with me? Every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What did Pascal mean by that? Blaise Pascal was saying that all of our actions are motivated by pleasure. In this regard, sometimes in life we can be living in such a severe deficit of pleasure in our life that the idea of living successive days in that state it seems and appears more pleasurable to us in the darkness to end our lives than to continue it on this pleasure deficit severe deficit of pleasure that we are presently experiencing he's saying even those Dark, difficult things are driven by pleasures. How far we'll go? Another philosopher who lived 300 years before Jesus, Epicurus, said it this way. It is from pleasure we begin every choice and every avoidance. Very interesting. So he's saying because we crave pleasure and want it so badly, we'll even avoid things in order to get pleasure. We'll avoid having a hard conversation we should be having. We'll be, avoid making a hard decision because it's more pleasurable not to have to. Some of us will avoid hard work because it's not pleasurable. So sometimes we are so driven by pleasure we avoid hard things or we make choices for things because we pursue pleasure. We choose to step out of a, a, a difficult marriage. Why? Because it's no longer pleasurable we're pursuing pleasure. We make choices, we avoid things, because in this last statement, I thought, man, it's brilliant. If this is not true of 2018, I don't know what is. Using feeling as our standard for judging every good. Man, some of you are on social media and you know exactly what this is saying. The outrage on social media is a pandemic right now. And how do you determine what's right and wrong? Feeling. Facts, if they support your feeling okay. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's even facts, it's what you feel is right, what you feel is true. Even truth has become feeling-based in our culture side. Epicurus got this 300 years before Jesus even walked this earth. Pleasures in our lives drive our actions. We make determinations from them. In fact, Epicurus led his followers, and he said this, you're going to find your ideal life in pleasure. What he wanted to do is lead them to a place, a Greek word, ataraxia. He wanted to lead them to a place of ataraxia, undisturbedness. The idea was this. If you could get enough pleasure inside that hole in your life, if you could get enough of it in there, then you'd enter into a place of emotional undisturbedness, and you'd be free of anxiety. What a great goal, right? I mean, that is a great, noble goal. Who doesn't want that? Don't you want that for your loved ones? To be free from emotional disturbance or anxiety, to enter into that place of atorexia? Now, here's the interesting thing, though. The philosopher would say this, that if you try to find that state in temporary pleasures, it will fail you. More on that later. Pleasures, pleasures also, we need to know, are not bad in themselves. Turn to someone next to you and say, I guess pleasures are okay. Pleasure's not a bad thing. Nobody turned to anyone and said that. How about you, I'll make it simpler. Just turn to someone and say, God made pleasure. Whoa. God created pleasure. In His creation, He created you with the ability to feel pleasure. He created pleasurable moments. He's created pleasure pleasures here on earth. One of my favorite authors and great way to demonstrate how pleasures come off their their tracks and they begin to actually destroy lives instead of enhancing lives is C.S. Lewis wrote a fictional book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's an interesting book. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's fascinating. Here's what the book is based on. The book is based on this senior veteran experienced demon, and he is training and mentoring a younger demon on how to harass the human race and the enemy in this little paragraph that he writes about pleasure is god the enemy of this demons is god here's what the veteran says to the rookie he says never forget that when we're dealing with any pleasure any pleasure in its healthy normal and satisfying form we are in a sense on the enemy's ground on god's ground Because God made pleasure, and all of our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. And so he's saying that all pleasures have terms that God has placed around them. And when they're being enjoyed inside of those terms, you're on God's ground. These are pleasures God gave. People are enjoying them. It is actually moving them closer to God, not further away. So he says, he concludes teaching this young rookie demon. He says, all we can do is encourage humans to take these pleasures pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced and use them at times or in ways or in degrees which God has forbidden, therefore creating an ever-increasing craving with an ever-diminishing pleasure. This is a truth I'll come back to later. But when we take and make pleasures our ultimate, and we use them on our terms, we, we actually experience less pleasure. Less pleasure. So here's the truth from this little piece, that pleasures are not evil in themselves. It's simply this. God created pleasure, not Satan. God created pleasure. Pleasure, it's not a threat to God. Nor is it a disgusting thing to God. God created it. All things beautiful. Now, as we're going to see, the writer in Ecclesiastes set his life on pursuing pleasure. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, watch the screens as Roley from our church reads the account of the philosopher.
1: I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasures to find out what is good but that also proved to be meaningless. <laughs> Laughter, I said, it's madness. What does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves, of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves who had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herd and flock than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself, the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a haram as well that the light of a man's heart. I became greater than by far anyone in Jerusalem before me. and all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I survived all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun.
0: In this passage of scripture, the philosopher is experimenting with pleasure. When it says in verse 1, it says, come now. He said, I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself up with wine and embracing folly. But my mind still guided me with wisdom. It's interesting in verse 1, if we went back, he says, come now. When he says that, he's connecting it to chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's tried to fill that and answer that question, what is the meaning of life? And he pursued it long before pleasure became his center. Before that, it was knowledge and education. He says in chapter 1, he says this, I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. For much wisdom comes much sorrow, and the more knowledge, the more grief. He says this, listen, I tried to find meaning. I educated myself. I, I, I gathered knowledge and wisdom. And under the sun, I could not find answers to life's big questions. The big question is like, what is the meaning of life? What is my purpose here? What happens when I'm going to die? So he determines that everything is meaningless. And then in chapter two, he moves from trying to explore and find answers to almost a place where I think all of us could acknowledge and it's sensible. He says, well, I might as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die. I'm going to find pleasure in this moment. And he tries to fill this void, this yearning inside of him with all manner of pleasure, just like we do. But the pleasure is not for pleasure in itself. We turn to things because we want to feel loved. We so desperately want to know we matter that somehow we have value. And pleasures take all kinds of forms. In verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 2, he says this, laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? These two words in the Hebrew are two different words. Laughter means a diminishing sense of discernment. In other words, getting smashed It's it's going out and partying and getting smashed. Pleasure is a different Hebrew word. It's more refined. It means, it's like buying art. In other words, there are downtown pleasures and there are uptown pleasures. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, same thing. Same thing. Both of them are trying to avoid the larger questions in life. They're the same thing, and either, in other words, pleasure cannot fill that void, whatever form it takes. Pleasure, if it's your primary pursuit, you think it provides you an escape, and it's actually a trap. And the writer of Ecclesiastes lets us in on his world to see this, because did you notice? He denied himself nothing. In verse 10, he said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my my heart no pleasure. Now, what person can say that? Probably not many of us in this room. Because we deny ourselves pleasures all the time, usually because of money or power. But this guy's the top 1%. He had the money and power. And if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you realize he went majorly into the exploration of pleasure. He denied himself nothing, nothing. And then when he found it, he denied himself no volume of it. It was massive amounts of pleasure. He kept medicating at deeper and deeper levels, but it never satisfies. Ultimately, he comes back to this place where, it, where pleasure fails us. Now, it's important to acknowledge, because he will acknowledge doesn't mean that it doesn't provide a high, doesn't mean that it doesn't provide some measure of comfort, but it's a pocket of comfort that's fleeting. It's a high that fades and it's because pleasure promises us two things it cannot deliver. Here's the first thing. Pleasure fails us this way. Pleasure will fail to distract you. Did you notice he was looking to be distracted? He said this, I love this portion of scripture. He said, I tried cheering myself up with wine and embracing folly. And that little dash, you could put a big, big but there. <laughs> embracing folly, but my mind still guiding me with wisdom. He's painting a picture like he is all in on pleasure. He's going for it. He's doing uptown and downtown pleasure. He's doing it all, but you know what won't happen? He can't turn it off. More knowledge, more grief. He knows too much now. And he looks at it almost like when I was growing up, we used to call it a Catholic conscience. You know, you're at and you're having fun, but you can't fully have fun. Why? Because you know, you know there's more to life than this. There's got to be. He's talking about that life ache that's inside of all of us. See, the problem with the philosopher is the problem for some of you. The problem with the philosopher is he's too logical and too rational. He's too much of a thinker because he's done the math. If your origin is insignificant, if you're just a collision of molecules that just happen to be, and somehow the human species scaled to the top of the ladder, if your origin is insignificant, and he does the math, and if your destination is insignificant, that when your life is over, that's it, finite, done, you're done. You cease to exist. Logically, rationally, what does that make your life? Insignificant. And the problem is, is he's done the math. He's thinking. He's logical and rational and a thinker. And he says, if these things are true, then what does this mean? It's meaningless. A chasing after the wind. It can't mean anything. And so he attempts to fill that knowledge that he has now with pleasure. But pleasure fails to distract him. Pleasure fails us a second way too. Not only to distract us, it fails to satisfy us. Here what he says in verse 11, as I just mentioned. Everything was meaningless, he determines. He's tried all of this and he realizes it's all meaningless. It's like chasing after the wind. This is the second most used phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what it means is simply this, you can't hold on to the wind. You might experience it in a moment, I love a windy day. I love when the trees are blowing. I love wind. I look forward to fall and those blustery days that Winnie the Pooh describes. I love those days. But you know, you can't save the wind. You can't keep the wind. It's here and it's gone. And he says, that's what pleasures are like. Pleasures, and addiction counselors will teach people this. Pleasure agents, all these things that we can become addicted to, pleasure agents give you a rush, but then there's a tolerance factor they talk about. In other words, if you thought of pleasure, let's talk about a pleasure that maybe I don't struggle with. Uh, So shopping, shopping. Not not a principle pleasure activity of mine. This is a functional activity of mine. Other people, you find pleasure in this, right? (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) Here's the interesting thing with pleasure. What he's saying is basically this. If, if you had five, think of it as a liquid. You had five liters of shopping pleasure one day, and it provided an escape for you. It felt comfortable to you. Discomfort, you were anxious, and you just felt good. You got something new, and it feels really good to get something new. You got a deal. You got to, you know, Like someone in my family, not my immediate family, but my extended family, would often say when they buy something, it was really expensive, but it was on sale, Right? And then you have this cathartic feeling that's attached to it. He's saying this, five liters of that worked really well for you this week. Next week, and you want to go and experience that same thing, needs to be six liters. Next week, turns into seven liters. It doesn't satisfy the same way because we build a tolerance to the effects of temporary pleasures in our life. They wear off in their ability to create pleasure. That's how addictions get started, that destroy lives. Uh, This uh, actor, Philip uh, Seymour Hoffman, I don't know if you guys know him. Shortly before he died, he gave an interview. And why, why he had not been able to find happiness in this life. He said, pleasure never led me to happiness. Here were his words. He said, I think I kill pleasure, he said. I take too much of it. I take too much of it and make it unpleasurable. There is no pleasure that I have not made myself sick on. You know what's interesting? None of these pleasures are evil. But God created terms for these pleasures to operate in. And when we do pleasures on our terms, not God's terms, it actually gives us less pleasure in life. It creates less pleasure. By pursuing pleasure on our terms, we actually experience less of it. Because pleasure is like a wind. It's like a wind. It's not an escape, it's a trap. Now, it's interesting because when I hear this, this feels good though. And friends, I don't blame anyone. Why would you blame anyone? If you're like the philosopher, if your life is rough right now, we're all looking for an escape. How many of us pray, God, give me the strength to go through? Or how many of us pray, God, get me out of this? Come on. We don't want the strength to go through. We want an escape immediately. Thank you. This Sunday at the end of the service, I'll give you to the end of the service to God. You know, just to set all things right. Fix everything that hurts me on the inside. And here's the thing. We want these things. I get it. The philosopher gets it. God gets it. But the problem is with these pursuits is pleasure cannot deliver. Here's the reason why. Principal reason, principal scripture in the book of Ecclesiastes. He says of God that he made everything beautiful in its time. He also set eternity in human hearts. Another translation for this would be he has set eternity endlessness in all of our hearts and the problem is we all crave for eternal pleasure and beauty and the temporary pleasures were never designed to fill that hole and in fact when you start stuffing them in you realize you can't stuff enough you can't stuff enough it never scratches the itch that you actually have where do you find this ultimate pleasure this ultimate beauty Well, the Bible would say, because remember, Ecclesiastes is a book of questions, not answers. But in the rest of Scripture, you begin to see that the answer is you find pleasure and beauty in the face of God. The psalmist would say it this way in Psalm 27, 16, sorry, the first one. In your presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are, can you say it with me, pleasures forevermore. Says it this way in Psalm 27. He says, one thing, one thing I ask from the Lord to gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Now, friends, if this is true, a lot of us are in trouble. A lot of us are in trouble. A lot of people say, I believe in God. And the philosopher would say, why? Well, well he's there. Well, what does that mean to you? Well, I go to church and I obey the Ten Commandments. And the philosopher would say, why? Well, because I ought to. Why? See, the book of Ecclesiastes is is annoying. It's like the two to three-year-old toddler that follows you around constantly asking you, why? Why is the sky blue? I don't know. Go Google it. (laughs) Why is the grass green? Why, where do babies come from? I don't know, ask your father. You know, these are the annoying questions of life and it's incessant. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, remember, he's asking hard questions because he wants you to think now, not when it's too late. He wants you to think in advance. He takes your questions, take you to hard places so you can find hard truth, so you can build a life that will last. He is pushing us in this. He's pushing you, he's pushing me. Because we buy into temporary beauty all the time. Now, let me just have a pastoral minute with you. I get concerned about this all the time. I get concerned that we don't know the difference between being a religious person and being a Christian. I get concerned, I'm going to be very transparent with you. I get concerned with people that I know and love that church is a regular part of their life, and they're not really a Christian. They're a religious person. How do you tell the difference? Not to tell somebody else, but in you. Religious people find Jesus and God useful. Christians find God beautiful. Religious people find Jesus very useful. Christians find God beautiful. And it's such a subtle difference. It's hard to see the difference. Religious people and Christians can both obey. They can both be desperate for God. They can both show awe for God. Uh, Certainly, religious people show a lot of reverence for God. But you know, if it came down to it, they don't find pleasure in God. They don't delight in God. He's useful. See, the difference between a Christian and a religious person is a true Christian understands the gospel. that understands the good news of Jesus Christ. That every one of us had done things to other people, done things to ourselves, done things to the heart of God, that the Bible would describe as sin, that made this world ugly. The ugliness we see in this world is the sin of humankind. And not only made the world ugly, it made our human souls ugly. It distorted the inside of us. What were we going to do with all of our wrongdoing and the ugliness that was around us? Well, in Isaiah chapter 53, it talks about someone, the one that would come from above the sun, under the sun, and bring meaning into this life, Jesus. And it describes him this way, rather Interesting description of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. It says, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Jesus had lost His beauty. Jesus Christ became ugly. Jesus became weak. Jesus lost His glory. Jesus became despised. Why? Because he would take all of that ugliness, all of that brokenness, and he would lay his life down on a cross so that we that were ugly could be made beautiful. See, for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus, he lost his beauty so that when God would look on us he would see us as beautiful how do we recapture the beauty of Jesus how do you experience the beauty of Jesus for the first time some of us i'll be very frank some of us are we're addicted we find pleasures more here than we do in God some of us are maybe it's not even addiction we're distracted We find more pleasure in this than God. Religion will say this, obey, obey, or God will get you. And the gospel will say, Jesus did come to get you. But not to condemn you, but to pull you up out of the miry clay and set your feet on a rock to stay. To give you amazing grace that has no ends. That's what Christ came to do for each of us. How do you find the beauty of Jesus? How do you gaze on it? If you're a follower of Jesus and you're distracted, how do you do that? If you're not, how do you see that? Well, it all starts by looking at Jesus. It all starts with getting to know Jesus. Now, hear me here. Getting to know Jesus, not just God in general. Not just God in general, but getting to know Jesus. Now, here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep pushing a little bit. You okay? Everybody all right? Check and make sure the person next to you hasn't seen it yet. Let's keep going. Here's the thing. Some of you are first-generation Christians, and the challenges you faced are very unique. And I, am, I just want to applaud your courage. You were the first ones to come to church in your family. People are like, why are you going there? You're reading a Bible. Like, why are you doing that? You're becoming a fanatic. Whatever, whatever the language comes up. You, you began to gather in rooms like this and sing songs out loud. Where else in our world do people gather and sing songs? Not much, but you do it. You set, you went, overcame a lot of obstacles and challenges to be in church. And, you know, I commend your courage. But I will say this. If you grew up in a Christian home, you have different challenges, and I think even harder challenges. If you grew up in a Christian home, here's your biggest challenge. You meant the church before you meant Jesus. And it's far easier to love Jesus than it is the church. Jesus is kinder than the church. Jesus is more welcoming and accepting than the church. Jesus is more gracious than the church. And some of you grew up in church and you became young adults and even adults in our midst. And you thought you gave your life to Jesus, but you really gave your life to the church. And then one day you woke up and you started looking around and you realized people weren't perfect at church. People offended you. People had bigoted ideas of this or that. People gossiped, people did this. And you know what? You had your reason to walk away from the church and I don't blame you, why? Because you were in love with the church, not Jesus. See, here's the thing, friends. The church is not our beauty, Jesus is. The church is Jesus' beauty, though. Jesus calls her her bride, warts and all, ugliness and all. He loves the church. I love that about him. But you were never meant to fall in love with the church. You're to love the church. You're meant to fall in love with Jesus. And when you do and you know him, you can't help but love the church. It changes. You're not shocked by the sin or the attitudes or the things around you anymore. Why? Because you get your eyes fixed on Jesus, not people. And you're seeing them through a different lens. It starts by looking on Jesus. And here's how you do that. You talk about Jesus. You read about Jesus. You, you look for Jesus. You explore Jesus. I want to invite your friends. Talk about Jesus. There is something in me that rises up whenever I talk about Jesus. So You know what that is? That's, that's Jesus' spirit inside of me rising up. Uh, it, it's exploring, reading his words, reading about him. One of the principal pathways we gaze on the beauty of God is Jesus and then Prayer. Prayer. You know, I was thinking about it this week, and I got to say, I felt a measure of conviction. I thought about, I, I've raised two uh, great guys in my home, really love them. And I invested a lot of time in teaching them baseball and soccer, and, you know, they had to learn a musical instrument in my family, you just, you had to, and, because I had to. And if I had to endure that, they were going to too my family, you had to know more than one because my dad owned music stores. So, you know, four. So, so I play four, all mediocre or bad, because I didn't focus on one. I don't know. But, you know, how much I built into them, the time and everything else. And I got thinking, playing hockey or playing baseball is so much easier than praying. Going to Kuman math and whatever is so much easier them praying. I wonder, how much time have I taught them how to pray? Because here's the interesting thing about prayer. It is so easy to do, and I want that to be a low threshold in this room. It is just talking to God, but that is the beginning point. Because it is facets of prayer like praise, repentance, intercession. They are critically important to discovering the beauty of God. Critically critically important to discovering the beauty of God. How did I learn how to pray? You know, it was primarily listening to my dad. My dad prayed, and I listened. And then I was around people that I would call seasoned prayer people people who had a lifestyle of praying. I listened to them. You can buy a book. And you might learn well that way. That's a great way to do it. You can certainly study prayer in scripture. But I'll tell you this. There's no better way than being around people praying and something's caught and taught at the same time. I'd encourage you. It might be a great pathway for you to discover prayer. Friday nights this fall, we have our Friday night prayer group here. And it's filled. It's a room filled with people who pray. They will never embarrass you make you step out and do anything you don't want to do. But just go and listen. Go and be there. Immerse yourself in prayer and see the beauty of God. You will discover the beauty of God and the pleasure of God through Jesus, through prayer, and finally through the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ever been to an art gallery? What do they have over every piece of art? A light. A light that illuminates the beauty of the art. The Holy Spirit illuminates Jesus. He illuminates Jesus in our lives. Friends, I'm going to encourage you, and the challenge is going to be as you leave this place, I want to encourage you to pray every day. More than just thank you for the food. Not volume. I'm not talking about length or anything. If you don't know what to pray, if you're new here and you're saying, I don't even know Jesus, then start with this prayer every morning. God... Holy Spirit, show me Jesus today. That's it. You watch that prayer life expand over time, but you can just start with that. Show me Jesus today. Illuminate Jesus, because that's where the true pleasure is. That's where eternity exists. That's where we derive true beauty through Jesus. Can I pray with you? Father, thank you for this great group of people. Lord, your love towards them so outweighs any human being's love towards them. And God, you see this collection of people, but you also see each individual. How vast and enormous you are that you are able to love us directly, individually in this moment and corporately as a group of people. And God, I pray firstly with those that might be sitting in the seat of a skeptic But either this week or over the course of our conversation in Ecclesiastes, they come to a place where they want to trust you. And friends, if that's you, I'd encourage you, even echoing some of my words in your heart, as we just pray a simple prayer to invite Jesus to shine his light of beauty in our lives. Jesus, I've been looking for meaning in this life. I've explored pleasure and knowledge and God, I've come to a conclusion that these things don't satisfy. I still have questions. I'm not sure of everything. But in this moment, I want to place my faith and trust in you. God, would you take my ugliness, the things I've done to other people the things I've done to myself that are harmful, the things that have hurt your heart. And would you take that ugliness and replace it with your beauty? (laughs) Would you forgive me? Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that Jesus would be illuminated in my heart and mind. And God, uh, I pray for my friends in this room who are like me, who grew up in the church. And God, maybe... Maybe we're addicted. Maybe we're distracted right now. But God, it's... uh, just haven't been gazing on your beauty and taking pleasure in you. Not as some sort of guilty thing, a checklist thing. But God, we want our hearts to delight in Jesus, the Logos, who came under the sun and brought meaning into this world and brought life into this world and embodied truth for this world. So Jesus, in this moment, we look on you and we invite your Holy Spirit to illuminate Jesus in our lives and hearts so that we're able to enjoy pleasures in this life without them being our ultimate We're able to enjoy pleasures on God's terms so they don't destroy our hearts because we have settled our ultimate pleasure, our ultimate joy, our ultimate beauty and delight, and it is Jesus. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast all creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the one church creative team